the time's been the, the world the world is kind of shaken up by so many things and uh, we you know we're connected to all these things we're all one organism essentially together so uh, it stimulates us to do what we do best which is creating arts to counterbalance all the damage that's been done left and right so it has been very um tumultuous and on one hand and at the same time very um you know inspiring would be the wrong word but it's been but it's definitely been a very procreative and very cross-pollinating in terms of uh output because a lot of people you know you know the hard times make people that are strong and uh, you know they they and and connections some connections perish the, the superficial connections go away and uh, people have less time for things like that and, and and the connections that have potency you know they get stronger so suddenly uh, you know, you're collaborating with people that was something that was lingering maybe in there and lurking for a couple years. Suddenly, like, this is like, we're doing this now. And so that's that's been, a lot of that has been going on. You know, for example, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a ministry fan of since ministry, you know, you know since, since, since the day one of ministry. And, you know, Old Jurgensen and I met along the way on the festivals previously, but you know, this year we made some music together. It's actually just got announced, so now I can finally talk about it. I have track with Old Jurgensen on new Ministry album, and all is also going to do uh, uh, another mix for uh, for Google Bordello. You know, so. Just like, and these are real collaborations. This is not like over the internet kind of thing. These are like, it's not the postal service. Yeah, we go in, we spend time, we knock it out out of the synergy in the room. You know, it has to be alchemic. And um, so that's one of them. And at the same time, perhaps what MC was referring to that, you know, there seems to be a barrage of new projects every time she talks to me. Yeah, perhaps. Well, you know, for years I was kind of encouraged to do a memoir. You know, but it's like you know, I was like, well, what am I fucking soccer player? You know, to do a memoir when I'm barely over thirty. You know, but now more mileage has been acquired, and uh, so. I kind of received an offer I couldn't refuse as far as memoir goes. And it just seemed like the story had enough of arch of development to be useful to other people because it's got to be useful. I mean, just, you know, talking about your things, you know, who cares? But if it's, if it's actually becomes something that can serve the purpose for, for, you know, for people, and, and and then then my motivation goes up, you know. So working on that, you know, working on that. In this specific instance of of the book, what purpose are you trying to serve? Advice is a very lame thing to do, and uh, you know, you, you know, don't you know, don't advise advise anything to anybody unless they really really ask you, and even if they really ask you, even then, you know, try maybe skirt it. <laughs> Um, in the same time, we do learn from each other, you know, so, but I think by maybe laying out certain experiences in a very honest and, um, factual way, actual and factual way, you, um, that, that becomes useful. And I'm also just judging from my own experiences. I mean, I was always a fan of documentaries and, and biographies and, and it was able to pick out certain things that, that I found very useful, that, you know, positive things. Of course, those things are manicured in tons of, you know, mythology and hyperbolized bravado and things like that. 
but some of them are better than others. So I think that, you know, things really uh, can be useful if they're delivered honestly and authentically in, in non-advisive form. For me personally, the huge thing is, is, is a discipline. Is, is, uh, I find it always ironic that, you know, that people kind of, if we spend time with them, you know, somebody who loves Gogol Bordelli, you know, comes into a circle of our friends, becomes introduced to the to the band's kind of internal vibe, and they're just kind of always perplexed, like, wow, it's like a gigantic informational processing center. I thought it's going to be just like shots of vodka night and day. And it's just like, well, h- how fucking stupid that would be, you know? <laughs> That's like a one dimension of it, you know, but uh, I, I love, that's just almost like a, the lowest denominator of it, you know what I mean? And and, um, and uh, I think that, uh, and I love that because it's, you know, when people really figure out what they're all about, they're like, oh, wow, so this kind of whole Gogol Bordello thing, oh, okay, it makes sense. That's why the band has such a longevity. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's like a, these guys have a method. It's like, yes, exactly. That's kind of what I'm trying to lay out is the power of the method and the power of intentional discipline that, that kind of ties it all together. Because I'm, a, I'm a really a person who thrives on discipline. In what ways do you apply discipline? In a very straightforward, disciplinic, self-disciplining kind of ways. Um, you know, a bit of martial art, a bit of uh, meditation, a bit of uh, drill. Just, I'm, I'm friends with drill, you know. <laughs> you know, I befriended drill when I was, as a form of centering yourself. So, uh, music is a form of centering yourself. And, and yes, of course, and vice versa, and, and the opposite too. But, for example, yeah, when I went to musical school, which I quit, and I'm not a very scholastic person, so it's like I have to create my own discipline because discipline of other structure drives me fucking nuts. So I'm like a creator of my own self-discipline. And when I went to musical school, you know, I was in, in percussion and, and drumming, um, classes and uh, which was my focus and uh, we were studying bolero maurice ravel every rock musician loves bolero and everybody on richie blackmore and so on and so forth i think just about anybody anyone from metal world loves bolero it's it's a highly repetitive very riff structured kind of thing that just grows, grows, grows to a cl- tremendous climax. And it goes on for about 16, 17 minutes, depending on the orchestra. But yeah, the drummer's job here is to do a quite redundant thing and to be, just to be a, a backbone who keeps marching pattern of bolero. It, it's such a tedious task and I kind of found some, I made friends with that. I mean, playing bolero on stage with the orchestra is 16 minutes. Practicing it with a correct, you know, all the academically rudimentary, uh, you know, hand drill. You know, when you're 12 years old, is when you just want to like, you know, put on Slayer and get on with it, you know, which I always did too as well. But you feel me like, that aspect of doing something that's seemingly so tedious and and, and finding uh, uh, a, you know, yourself as uh, it's a pretty humble position, actually, you know, to, to be a drummer in bolero. It's it's pretty far from lead, and uh, you're playing basically the most monotonous part of entire thing. But without it, the whole musical piece will collapse. So it's a way of seeing yourself as a, as, a, as a part of a greater picture 
and kind of just serving that purpose. You know, I think it was really, really actually a great experience. Uh, everybody was making fun of me. All my, you know, metal and punk rock buddies were like, <laughs> especially I was practicing it on a, a rubber drum, you know, on a, so, you know, just imagine how many jokes were made about that being rubber and, you know, repetitive motion. And <laughs> sure. Well, okay. Yeah. They write, they write themselves. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty punk rock though, playing uh, a garbage can as a drum. Eventually I promoted myself to that. <laughs> it's not my fault that fucking the garbage drums sounded better than fucking Soviet drum set. <laughs> that could have been a good fallback career when you moved to New York. It was the, playing the garbage drum. It's a very popular instrument in the subways. Yeah, well, I, I did a bit of basking here in New York City. Oh, did you? Yeah. Luckily, it wasn't too long of a phase, but <laughs> I remember it was maybe like 97 or, yeah, 97 or 98, maybe. Eight. It came to a point where I just literally needed a ne- next, you know, $2 to, have a, to buy a breakfast. <laughs> so I took my guitar, I went up to the 42nd Street. Once I walked out on the corner and just started catching fire, you know, playing, playing, you know, the, the usual things that I learned. Folsom Prison Blues, some Elvis Presley covers, you know. <laughs> and about five minutes into it, somebody came up and said, hey, who the fuck are you? This is my corner. I've been playing here for fucking five years. And I was like, all right. So we like went around the block and started doing the same thing there. And somebody came up to me and said, hey, so I was just taking a break and I was eating a sandwich, but this is my corner. You know? And I was like, all right, guys, uh, respect. But where do you think I should begin? They're like, well, you, you better begin somewhere below the Canal Street. You have to work your way uptown. Yeah, and then, you know, maybe ten years later, you know, you'll you'll, you'll make it to the West Fourth, you know. I was like, F-. and I actually went down the local Street to try to find a place to bus, and I did. Were you in like Chinatown area? Um, the Chinatown didn't really work for me. No, it was like in somewhere like Cortelieu. Uh Yeah, like right, right, way down there. Like on the west side. Yeah, and then and I tried the West Fourth and stuff like that. But I mean, it wasn't a long thing. I mean, after like a month of trying to make it work, I was like, "All right, fuck this. Let's just get a job in bookstore." And uh, and I did, you know, got a job in bookstore in Har in Harlem through a friend of mine. At very least, it can be very humbling, and it can teach you to play to a a non receptive crowd. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a great school. It's a great school of um, realizing that it, people are going about their business and they don't fucking care at all. It's New York City, uh, you know. Yeah, especially in New York City. Be doing anything on the street and they would walk past you. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's kind of good ego reduction uh, practice, you know. I mean, a lot of those Buddhist ego reduction practices – essentially about that so <coughs> i was <coughs> definitely um one of them is that something that you've had to battle with ego i mean that you know that is certainly that's something that people associate with lead singers of rock bands right um <clears throat> i don't know see by that time um i kind of have a strange trajectory in 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 rock music so i mean yeah, I started playing in a band since I was 14. And by, by the age I was 15, I, our band was kind of blowing up in Ukraine and underground. It was like really, really taking on wings. And all the most, you know, prominent people in, in subculture there, they were all over us. I mean, you know, the, the hippest artist made an album cover that, you know, we were suddenly produced by like, the hippest people in, in, in Ukraine and, uh, and they were very, very hip. So after that, you know, I kind of was plucked out out of all of that and, you know, had to leave it all behind and 
And, um, and, and already even by that time, I kind of experienced kind of like all the most negative aspects of being in a band. I mean, we were young, you know, everybody's bravado is out of fucking control. And, uh, you know, you know, all kind of a girlfriend theft, <laughs> you know, one guy steals another girlfriend. All this kind of thing went on, like in the first year of being in a band, it was a turmoil while still going to rehearsals, like not speaking and still continuing to play because music was the sacred thing we beheld as the most important core of it all. You know, so I, I got pretty kind of burned quite, quite significantly by that. And, uh, you know, just like on level of just all the way into physical fighting, you know, and, and I mean, we were kids, we were kids, you know, we're in a, in a very tough environment. It was, you know, we lived in a very industrial part of the city, very much like in Abalone, it's an outskirt. It's not a suburb. It's an outskirt. It's like, there's, there's no gardens or, you know, fountains. This is just like a rough cut. And, you know, it was, it was a time of, um, as they call them, the informal, informal uh, unifications of youth, uh, which here in America you call gangs. And uh, that were, you know, some of them were quite benign and some of them were quite malignant. And uh, they were, and we were all parts of these subcultures that were completely mutating all the time and you had to constantly watch yourself over the shoulder and uh so the band kind of had also pretty uh rough cut vibe in some sense you know this was a lot of this was a time when you know punk rock and was kind of getting uh replaced by skinhead movement and uh i mean i of course mean anti-racist skinhead rude boy style uh original Oi, very cool. You know, a lot of my friends went into that. And, uh, but it was, it was music and art that was connected to the street. You know, like we weren't art students who were singing about gangs, like blue collar. Yeah, we were blue coral collar guys who were in this informal unifications of youth singing about art. You know, (laughs) it was more like that. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of a burn up and um, in that environment, along with the excitement. And so then, and then I was just kind of plucked out out of it and put in immigration and where I lost that whole allure of, you know, bohemian life, lifestyle, any element of it was just gone. I was just working in construction in Italy, like, you know, and then working and, and, and working in a winery and working fucking washing car cars and shit like that. So for like a year, you know, <laughs> and uh, it took a while to, you know, when I already came here, originally when I was stationed as a refugee, you know, with my family in Vermont. So it took a while to rebuild that. And starting a band there and, you know, becoming a part of hardcore scene there. And and then I, I had a kind of, because Vermont is such a great, you know, a cradle of, it's a great crib, you know, to, for just, you know, for music and um, writing, being, being kind of, just being an artist, really. It's really art, artist friendly. And when I rebuilt that, you know, I kind of got back to a vibe I was in beforehand. Just things dissolved again for whatever cosmic reasons, you know. And I moved to New York and had to scratch from basking again. And and, and it was just kind of a, became a fucking pattern where that I, I kind of <laughs> was just like, all right, I guess it's just kind of how it fucking goes, you know. Like, um, like, uh, felt like I already had enough practice of this. So it wasn't so frustrating by the time, I guess that's what you're asking. (laughs) 
was jarring at that point. I was like, all right, it's that fucking thing again. Let's do it. When you say things dissolved in Vermont, what do you mean? Well, we had a band. And, I mean, I had I was in several bands in Vermont. Uh, one band was Epitaph. was a hardcore band. was very much like along the lines of New York hardcore, full on like inspired by Leeway and uh, slightly maybe like Biohazard and, you know, Little metal industrial thrash, America. yeah, crossover thrash, you know, full on like crump suckers, a little bit of this, and um, and um, you know, there was, I mean, it was a really great time for hardcore music. There was just streaks of hardcore, like every time you went to a show, there was like, wow, now there's Hare Krishna hardcore. Let's go and check out Shelter was coming out with this super strong, you know, um, Hare Krishna hardcore kind of thing, which of course they took from you know, Chromax, but still it was very like new school. And, uh, you know, there was quicksand, you know, with Walter doing kind of their post hardcore thing, just like a year later, it was just the evolution of hardcore was just amazing. You know, it was just quantum leaps all the time forward. So we were kind of on that train following closely all these developments and then, at one point, you know, I was like, I'm a punk rocker, you know, I just, it's just, it's where I live, you know, suddenly, something just led me back to this original, speedy, you know, uh, and Rancid came out with a, you know, first album, and I was just like, this is, this is kind of where, what, what is, what it's more about for me, you know, it's, a, I need to play this, and so I started um, kind of a punk revivalist band. Revivalist, I mean, I just left band in Ukraine. <laughs> like, that was like full on, full on, like that kind of just GBH, <laughs> you know, band. And now, now I was revivaling in punk, you know, three years later. Okay, so, but this band was, we called The Fags, and, uh, you know, because, you know, the, the, the more like the, the, the redneck, the rednecks in Vermont would call us, the, you know, <laughs> Fags when they would see us on the street. So, you know what I mean? So we're it's like, kind of like, it's kind of a rough name in today's context. I know, you know? I know, but I, I have to own it because uh, it, it's it's a time it's a comes out from that context, and uh, we were literally thinking. Uh, uh, I think Dana, I think Dana, our drummer, looked up this thing, the etymology slang fag, and it and it let. Uh, well, actually, it was really interesting. Yeah, it was a rough one because it leads back to Inquisition. You know, I mean, being tied to a pole, to a pole, a fag, is being, is, uh, was basically a slang for being a heretic. So it was either the heretics, which was there was a band in Boston that called the heretics, and or the misfits, which was already taken. So how do we... How do we side with the dispossessed and uprooted and the misfit of the world? Yeah, and that word was and it was kind of you know very punk rock uh, spirited way of displaying that. So in context of the time it was great because every band we played on the bill with was had a name that was just as offensive, like you know Seven Year Bitch or you know or something around then. Oh, we played with that. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. Totally. That was it. Was the t- it was the time capsule where if your name wasn't offensive, they're like you wouldn't get a gig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a reason why things happen at a particular time, and there's a reason why the fags d- dissolved, and because it wasn't really, it, it was kind of a trampling for. And I mean, we gave it a hundred. We gave it a thousand percent. We we treated it very seriously. We rehearsed nonstop. You know. F- four or five days a week. But uh, it was a great trampoline to once again strengthen the muscle, you know, commit yourself to the drill of music and uh, develop, uh, you know, d- develop confidence into your muscle. And, you know, when we split up, you know, everybody kind of went their separate ways, but continuing to pursue music up until to this day, you know, in different parts of the States at this point. But, you know, yeah, I think that we had a run and, you know, Dana moved to uh, Austin, Texas at that point and continued playing with rockabilly bands. And now his new band is called Bad Light. 
uh, which is kind of more like alternative blues. Yeah, very interesting uh, artsy kind of band. Obviously, a culture shock, you know, moving to Italy and then moving to the States. But when, when you first arrived in Burlington, how did you seek out like-minded people? That was not difficult. And in fact, I didn't have any culture shock. I mean, that's a that's like a often made assumption, but what culture shock? I mean, I went from one group of guys who were punks and skins and into 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 another. <laughs> like, what what culture shock would it be? It, it is a universal language, isn't it, punk rock? It is, and and it and it's it, it's fantastic that way because th- this is a very working class kind of intellectual kids, you know who gather around musical fire and and uh, exchange <clears throat> you know a, a lifestyle that's uh, fairly um, you know unpretentious and uh, sticks to you know they kind of delete the class struggle out of their way because I mean who the fuck wants to deal with it you know I mean class struggle goes on but in that context it's irrelevant I mean once, yeah, you know, every, everybody who's been in, in, in a New York, in a in a in a real thriving punk scene, they know that it's kind of it's a kind of equalizer. You know, it's more. It's usually based on majority of people are from working class who have artistic aspirations and uh, and lo- and have great taste in music. And but there is also like you know people who are like sons of millionaires who are there and you know people who are various different walks but that becomes irrelevant you know that's that their their social status just goes out of the fucking window once they're in that environment and it's a kind of a serves that social equalizer kind of a it's a great great way to be i was talking to somebody about this the other day that the uh, lead singer of link 80 is daniel Steele's or was daniel Steele's son mm-hmm yeah, I think if you dig deeper, you'll find more examples like that. But that that is totally great because um, it brings people together under a greater cause than social climbing or, you know, this kind of, you know, opportunity seeking. And then these people who say they have some dough kicking around, they start, they start labels and put out these other kids' records and they kind of you know, bring their resource to a better cause than, you know, fucking, uh, you know, otherwise. Yeah, seriously. Class struggle, uh, there's a sense in which it, it goes away, but it, it's also very present in that it's um, it's fodder for the music itself. Yeah, it's a super complex um, issue, but and, and class struggle is always there. It always leads back to class struggle, you know, and... Uh, of course, because there's such a huge middle class, it's um, it's kind of more diluted. But um, I don't know. I mean, I can't undo my uh, upbringing. You know, I mean, which was which was. Uh, I mean, most of the people in my family were working class or artists. You know, professional artists, or they were at least hobby artists. But for me, like even the artist, like my father's brother, my uncle, you know, who kind of babysat me a lot. I kind of grew up in his painting studio, you know, with him and all his friends with long hair and pants covered in paint and, you know, listening to some crazy ass prog rock or craft work. When I was like five years old, I already like was listening to craft work with them, you know, <laughs> and, uh, they still kind of had a very um, uh, uh, drill approach to it. Like they were, uh, they were still connected to the fact that, you know, they were kind of very Paul Cezanne about it, you know, like Cezanne was a kind of painter that just considered himself being a very uh, craft, you know, it's like I could be doing this or I could be doing furniture, you know, it's just like this is what this is what I do. I do this professionally. 
If I'm inspired, I fucking paint great. If I'm not inspired, I just keep painting. And it's still going to be pretty fucking good. <laughs> you know, that kind of attitude. Yeah, it wasn't a whimsical poetry uh, kind of... Uh, I'm inclined to uh, write a poem now, so I do. And if I'm not, then I'm, it's like, it wasn't, it's like, no, it's on because I'm a professional, that kind of thing. What's the experience like of, uh, in, in the process of working on this memoir of, of going back and um, I guess reexamining various aspects of your life early on? In a way, this memoir is kind of inspired by the documentary that just came out, you know, on the band, the Gogol Bordello story. And documentary, it's, it's came out, you know, it's, it's, it's at the festivals right now, you know, it premiered in Tribeca Festival and, uh, and uh, now I'm basically going out like every other week, flying out to one or another thing. And I think <clears throat> it's, it's too indefinitely, you know, it's, get, it's received greatly. But documentary, you know, it's an hour and a half and telling a story of uh, of a community, you know, Gogol Bordello. It's it's not not really a band. (laughs) It's more like a community, you know. And Actually, community is even the wrong word. It's more like a Gregor, you know, in in, in esoteric uh, field, they have this term, a Gregor, which is... um, kind of describes this cluster of energy that sort of exists as a form of a cloud and kind of unifies sort of like a collective collective consciousness of the of the group of people that kind of sort of has a certain spell over them you know it's like go figure who is guiding who <laughs> yeah so and uh, it's an interesting way of looking at things. And uh, sometimes I feel like there is some truth to it uh, because Goldberg is kind of it's 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 it lives on a it lives on its own and 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 um, kind of has its own trajectory, you know, and brings certain kind of people together. And uh, an hour and a half is just impossible to tell that story. I mean, it's just impossible, no matter how crafty, you know, Eric Weinrib, who's an amazing producer and a writer, and, you know, and Beverly and, and Nate, you know, and the editing team is amazing, Paula, you know, maximum respect. The film works really great. But the, but the memoir, why I took it, finally this offer to do it, is because it's kind of more like tell this, now that that story is out, kind of filled the holes that the documentary couldn't really go into. It's almost a kind of like a companion piece to the film. Say you saw the film, and uh, there's a lot of cliffhangers there. You know, the film couldn't afford to go on some of these things that I already even talked with you about, you know, the, the roughage of, uh, you know, youth that we had and stuff like that. And um, I thought, wow, you know what? This actually could be great if they can work together. So that's kind of that's kind of the idea behind it, you know. Your youth will be a, a piece of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's kind of there's a it's a big focus on it. Obviously, you know, it's your life and you live through it. I don't know if it felt extraordinary to you, but. You know, and from my position, you've absolutely led an extraordinary life. Uh, well, thank you. I mean, probably it appears to be like that in a certain sense, but I also kind of would shy away from being kind of um, portraying it as sort of this like, hey, here's a story from behind the Iron Curtain, you know, because. Um, I'm trying to connect more dots while telling my story that a lot of a lot of culture that's here that you know as quintessential Western culture, even American downright American culture, it has deep roots back there, and um, it 
it kind of, when you connect these dots, it's a very interesting mosaic, you know. Um, you know, Ramones is an icon of New York. And um, at the same time, you know, the found, one of the founding members of Ramones, Tommy Ramone, was born and raised in Budapest, you know, and he left Budapest for exactly the same reasons why I left Ukraine, because of the Soviet invasion. You know, Ivan Kral, you know, from Patti Smith's band and, and uh, from, uh, you know, played with Iggy three years afterwards, was left, you know, born and raised in Czech Republic in Prague, left with his family uh, Prague for exactly the same reasons that I did. You know, because of Soviet invasion one more time. Russian tanks rolling in. What else is fucking new? And uh, those are not passing characters in, in punk rock. Those are people who are deeply in the making of punk rock. You feel me? Like, <coughs> Sounds like there's, uh, there, there's a line to walk between... Um, you know, sort of the the, the no, I would say novelty of it. Uh, you know, of of being the story that may not be super familiar to the reader, but also trying to make find ways to make it more universal. That's kind of where I'm getting at, because the story goes on. I mean, it's actually I'm I'm kind of propelling the story myself because of my personal research that I've done and dots I connected, and every time I connect new dot, I get more excited about it. You know, like. You know, going back farther to like Andy Warhol, you know, with his deeply Eastern European roots, you know, and, uh, you know, it was him who gave to Lou Venus and First book by once again, Zohar Mazach, who was a Austrian Ukrainian author who wrote it in, in Lviv in Ukraine. <laughs> You know what I mean? So you kind of, it's um, just like that part of the world has a lot of global influence. Um, and, and it's, and even, even now I was just like in Ukraine in, in, uh, in September, right? And you know, it was my birthday and I wanted to go to Ukraine for, several reasons and also you know go and see my family and make sure everybody's doing okay and spend some face-to-face -face time you know and, and i was in a small town outside of kiev boyarka where i was born and raised like talking about before five years old and my aunt who lives there now she was just kind of like told me that well you know shalom aleichem wrote uh fiddler on the roof here i mean he wrote it in boyarka like down a street. And I was like, no, wait a second. You're just hyping Ukrainian cause now, you know, which uh, I'm in, I'm in, you know, sure. But it's like, it's just kind of, you're hyping it too hard a little bit, you know. All the roads can't lead back to Ukraine, you know. She's like, I'm not saying this, but this is, this is a simple fact that it was written here. And he wrote it about people here in Boyarka. And I was like, all right, let's look it up. So, like, I go look it up, you know, there it is, and wide open knowledge that, I don't know how the fuck I didn't know this. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like, it's a small town, it's wild that you, they never... Yeah, of course, and it was like, the Tevye, the dairy man, the, 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 the key character of, you know, uh, the, of, of, of uh, Filder on the Roof, yeah, he, he was an, an actual guy who was living in Boyerka, and then he moved into this other village that called uh, uh, Zariche, uh, just five kilometers away, and I biked all the way over there, you know, that same day, just <laughs> to see it. And, um, you know, it's an interesting mosaic of elements and how embedded they already are in global, in, in global culture, you know. And, and I, I find it to be just so interesting. It kind of, you know, makes me feel home as a, as a, as a transplant, you know, here, uh, it makes me feel a lot more home that I realize that those are actually <laughs> bits and pieces of where I came from, you know. Last year, you did a cover of the Pogues. You did it with, with Jesse Mallory. Yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, Jesse 
it's having its own struggles right now. But um, to, yeah. to date this podcast, uh, Shane McGowan just passed overnight. He was a big influence. And you met him at least yeah. once. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I met him several times. Met Shane several times. Um, it's been a sad morning. You know, I've been, I, I walked up to, you know, my messages flooded with, yeah, I mean, all, just about everyone I know either was a maniacal fan of Shane, or or um, friend, or or you know, a colleague of Shane, you know, you know, or you know, it's just this. Once you look, you know, just pull up any picture of Shane and look into his eyes, and it's it's absolutely singular, iconic soul, and uh, he has those portal eyes, you know. Where it's so it's just Dionysus in in walking amongst us, you know, and um, and uh, somebody who could put all that, you know, talking about working class intellectual, right there. He's pretty much the high priest of. Of that, this this Irish tradition, like this James Joyce kind of storytelling tradition. Yeah, yeah, a, a particularly great poetic storyteller uh, who just had such an effortless knack. Seemingly effortless, of course, it was uh, craft. But um, uh, I think that I think. It, it's it seemed so easy for Shane to to write in a way that was unattainable for other people, just unattainable. I mean, there's other people who are toiling away trying to sound, yeah. you know, epic and timeless. But in in case of Shane, it, it was really epic and really timeless, and it's and it looked like he's just taking it out of thin air, you know. And and you could read his lyrics as you know, often most of the time. Rock lyrics don't work as poetry on paper. I mean, I mean, some rock lyricists release them as poetry books, but they really don't don't work. Actually, uh, most of the time they don't. It's like, hey, let's not fucking fool ourselves. Rock and roll is not high art. It's art, but it's a pretty democratic form of art. You know, it's 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 a you know, it, it's a portal for artistic souls. But I don't know if well, it was so rare. Rare cases, of course, it reaches that. It's pop art. It's pop art, and maybe, you know, if you maybe Joy Division, you know, reached actually high art, uh, you know, frequencies and, and, uh, on the second side of closer. You know, I know, I know you put Shane up there with like, uh, like Nick Cave or Leonard Cohen of these people who, uh, absolutely, it. absolutely, actually, probably even maybe, maybe actually, well, I mean, I think, um, he might be actually even in a singular league here, you know. As I said, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I obviously looked in into uh, Leonard Cohen and, and kind of quite deeply and 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 uh, kind of into his craft. And he's known for toiling away yeah. for ages. I mean, it took ten years to write. Hallelujah. He he's a poet. He's a without you could take his lyrics. That's an example of somebody you could put in a poetry book, and he did. Yes, yes, yes. He's he's definitely uh, that that. But Shane kind of had a. I, I don't know if he. I, I from what I know, he doesn't have songs that he wrote for ten years. It seemed like he was just exuding them, you know, and putting them together quite quickly. And it, that it did have a lot of the Gonzo vibe to it you know it's just it's just they all sound like he woke up in the morning and or you know stroke him and he just laid it out and then maybe finished it one more time later like a jack kind of thing yeah yeah and it's just such a powerful thing to do because most of us can't do that yeah it's hard it's hard work to make something look effortless so yeah i consider it to be pretty fucking unattainable level of poetry we were talking about him and, and that specific song. I have to ask uh, how, how Jesse's doing these days. Uh, well, we're in touch, you know, um, I miss him. I miss him just seeing him regularly. 
you know. He was a that's real kind like, of around town kind of guy. Around town and extremely uh, helpful. And I mean, just going out and get a drink, that's one thing, but also that's regular. You know, he, Jesse's always a guy who just gets drinks for everybody and makes sure everybody's uh, having the best possible time with with uh, whatever with whatever they're about but he, it's just uh, we just i think that just everybody's missing missing him having him around the block and being being part of the community you know <coughs> i mean i i don't think that new york city would be anything like what it is at this point without he's kind of he's a he's a, he's a keystone species you know yeah 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 and he, he sounds so, he sounds like new york when he speaks he sounds and plus, I mean, it's a fact. I mean, he's been like, you know, providing his venues to for people to do to 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 keep um, to keep some of these clusters of culture. Yeah, just like his venues are the only portal for these certain clusters, you know? It's hard in New York City. You know, it's so expensive that, you know, you can't really make a living being an artist here. And, and that, you know, I, I live in Queens. Um, it's gentrifying too, but the transformation that Manhattan's gone, undergone in the past 30 years, it it seems like there is this, like, marked effort to take culture out of it. Well, that's a very gruesome uh, statement, yeah. And at the same time, I do know that people still persevering uh, while being an artist. <laughs> you know, so um, I think some of it is kind of coming back, you know, and it's um, thankfully to people like Jesse. <coughs> Damn it. Um, some of it is coming back actually to Manhattan because, you know, there is a limit on uh, on, on all those things you're descri- describing too, and it's also it's just re- it re- remains to be historical, and Manhattan remains to be uh, an island with a extremely highly energetically charged soil. There's just nothing you can do about it, and this is a it's a fact. I mean, someone told me. Sorry. Um, Someone told me, uh, I think it was Saul Williams actually who told me that um, Mahanari Indians, you know, the, the first nation that was living here, the Dutch, no, I mean, I know he told me this. This sounds very truthful to me, that they weren't people that this is a very extremely high energetic uh, soil and uh, you can't really um, this is not a place to chill and sleep this is a place to do uh, biz and uh, hunt and do more higher high energy activities look how um, how that's applied to the to the rest of the New York history Uh, maybe some of this uh, esoteric component, you know, will preserve Manhattan for uh, as also um, have that manic cultural element, you know. <clears throat> I mean, I just don't feel the same uh, outside of Manhattan, you know. I feel, I feel, feel here. I feel quite significantly in the pocket and just for who I am, because you know. Say in Vermont, I constantly felt like I was a maniac, you know, because, like, you know, I was walking a lot faster than other people. And, you know, and here I just kind of walk around the regular speed with everybody, seemingly, you know. Yeah. So it, it works for people like, it works for people like me. I've been here for about 20 years and I feel exactly the same. Um, but I, I was reading, I don't know if you've read the uh, Thurston Moore's book yet. That came out recently. Oh, that's I'm taking it on tour. Okay, yeah. So it's yeah, you know, it's very much about New York City. I mean, and it's very much about the band. Of course, it's Thurston. <laughs> yeah, and 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 a big part of it is the no wave scene, or the um, yeah, uh, yeah, the no wave scene. And there's a that that famous um, Brian Eno produced 
compilation that came out. Yeah, of course, with James Chance and DNA. Yeah, um, and I, I was I, I was just reminded of that because you know the you've, you've got this label that you just started up, and it seems like it the, yeah. the goal is sort of similar. Yes, uh, actually, very much so. I mean, I was very excited to start noticing that a, a kind of a resurgence of no wave inspired young bands in New York is starting to bubble up, you know, and, uh, in a certain sense, probably it's, um, it's extremely exciting for me because I'm all about it. Like anything that's spasmatic and, you know, contort yourself five times and uh, bring it on, you know, and I think it's just such an important, uh, 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 you know, part of, I can't, I can't imagine New York without, no way or New York hardcore. Yeah, that, that's just like New York doesn't exist without it in, a, in its real energetic entity. So in a certain sense, probably it's worth uh, connecting these dots and kind of curating uh, these, uh, the, the, these manifestations, you know, and bring them together and making some builds together where we're actually going to be uh, there, there's an idea. Well, you know, Eric Sanko is one of the great, you know, participants of No Wave. You know, and, and a James Chance's colleague. You know, we just talked the other night about doing a gig together, and uh, we're gonna land it probably in January, or February here in New York City as a kind of a No Wave past the torch event with some some pioneers and some newbies. You know, and I, I think it's just such a I mean, I, I get excited about things like that. Those are just kind of things I live for, you know, so. <laughs> Doing my small part to give it back to the city that that, that gave me everything, essentially, you know. It's here that I started to feel like I'm not some marginal freakaholic, <laughs> you know. It's here that the, I, I could gather kind of a, a band that, that uh, you know, was more than a band for a few years. Community and Gregor and all those things we talked about. And I found understanding, great understanding here from, from people. 